This is the Lean Construction Blogs Podcast, a podcast dedicated to stories, case studies, and lessons learned of applying lean construction from around the world. Join Dick Beyer as he interviews industry leaders, lean construction practitioners, and subject matter experts to help you improve the build environment in general and your design and construction projects in particular, advance your lean journey, and bring your continuous improvement efforts to the next level. Let's get started. Hey everybody, I'm Dick Beyer and this is the podcast with LeanConstructionBlog.com. Today we're going to talk with uh, one of my closest friends in the architectural community, a uh, man for whom I have tremendous respect and who has done a lot in terms of advancing things like target value design, uh, lean design and thinking, and working on uh, how design is changed by the whole concept of lean. His name is Stan Chu, and he is with Gensler currently. He's been with another with a number of firms over the years, spreading the the message and the uh, and the meaning of of what lean design can be. Today, we talk about not only his background, which I think you'll find really interesting, uh, and it may give you a clue to how he ended up where he did, uh, but also about uh, the origins of target value design, what it takes to implement on a project, uh, what the traditional SDDD and CD programming and design looks like in Lean, uh, and lots of other fun facts and interesting things that I, I think you'll enjoy. So without further ado, let's move on. Thanks very much for joining us. All right, well, let's uh, let's jump in. So welcome, everybody, to the uh, podcast. I am pleased to be joined today by my good friend and all-star architect in the world, Stan Chu. Uh, and after somebody says Stan Chu, I always say Kazoon type, but we won't do that one today. <laughs> Stan, how are you, man? You know, pretty good. Pretty good. Uh, pretty good. Yeah, there, there's a, a lot of interesting things going on right now. So oh I my appreciate goodness. the opportunity to get to sit down and talk with you. Yeah, well, thank you. I'm always uh, always looking for the opportunity to hang out with you, man. Um, <laughs> because I think that we are just quintessentially when we get together a podcast waiting to happen. But you've been part of the the lean journey for a uh, a long time, or the lean community. I, I, you know, this journey thing always sounds like you're getting on a bus with a bunch of people with chickens and baskets, and uh, <laughs> it's, it has some of that quality to it. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it certainly is an education. It certainly is a uh, a, a growth experience. Uh, maybe we talk about that. But uh, I, you know, I first met you at the California Prison Healthcare Receivership which is like the pedigree that you want to have if you're in the lean community. But before we get into that and what we all learned there, um, tell me a little bit about where you grew up, how you ended up being an architect. I basically grew up in Southern California. I'm going to try to weave something out of, out of all this. So in high school, I, I got pretty interested in, um, in set design and production, in designing and building sets. And that was, um, that was, that was a pretty early... Uh, moment of the iterative process of design and rework and and all that sort of stuff but also the the ability to see as things are evolving to improve refine add to design and then also some 
pretty relentless deadlines and even budgets and material constraints. Does that make sense? I mean, there's, yeah, no, there's no, kind absolutely. of a lot going on. Yeah, and it also had a flair for the dramatic there as well. Oh, that's true. I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. You yeah, can actually, true. you can actually see how well, you know, I've been working on the center block up here in uh, Ottawa, and the lead historic architect has said that the center block is about 35% building and about 65% theater. So it was probably a good start. Um, for what you wanted to do. So that was high school. Were you in the plays or just behind the scenes? Most, well, mostly behind the scenes, occasionally in the plays, but but always, well, for almost all of them, playing a role in the design and construction of the sets. So you were so, a gaffer. Yeah, well, and uh, like like drawn or, you know, whatever. Yeah. Scraping on the floor where things are going to go, <laughs> that sort of a thing, and Perfect. making it up on the fly, and then also being on the hook for producing it. Yeah, that's um, fantastic. So, so that led to... Well, that yeah, that was high school out here, and I went to to college on on the East Coast, and sort of continued that. And um, the school that I went to, I think, like most colleges, had a more a more organized approach to set design and set construction with schedules and budgets and you know drawings and all all that sort of stuff. So it it um, that was kind of a that that interest continued. Um, I was a dual major for most of college: neuropsych and fine arts. So I had kind of a a leg in the uh, in the the science side, you know, and then uh, a leg in the art side as well. So your your um, left brain was at war with your right brain on a regular basis. <laughs> it still is. <laughs> That's where that started. <laughs> so, so what school was that? Where did you go to undergraduate? Oh, to Wesleyan in Connecticut. Yeah. Wesleyan. I'm a Middlebury boy. Wesleyan, so just up the street. Yeah. Oh wait, so, oh Mertley. That's right, Middlebury. Yeah, 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 yeah Middlebury. I got a grant out of grad school, out of architecture school to go to Japan. I think I told you this, but I, I went, I took some of the money and went to Middlebury for the language program. Oh, perfect. Spent a year yeah. in Japan <laughs> yeah. well, I, as an I, architect. I spent my, uh, December of my 17th year in Japan as a Lions Club foreign exchange student. So uh, <sighs> we share so many roads. It's unbelievable. I tell you. <laughs> yeah, so, uh, for me, there were all these little lean seeds that were planted kind of along the way. Like lean, lean you know, has been become this big part of my life. And looking back kind of before the whole journey started, like you said, I, I sometimes wonder about that word. But but I realized, ah, there were little bits of it back then, too. You know, oh, yeah. I mean, I think every every time that you think about, well, why would I do that? Planted that lean seed in your mind that this seems like this seems like a lot of waste here. <laughs> Yeah. Well, I mean, the shift from from, you know, from high school to, to college, that shift to, OK, we're making a drawing. We're going to agree on the drawing. Now we're going to build the drawing. You know, it's like, well, you, you'd be in the building. You're like, wait a minute. That's a stupid idea. Yeah, but that's the drawing. Well, wait a minute. We made the drawing. <laughs> you know? But there was the price of that organization and discipline that was there was kind of a like, well, <laughs> I know. What, we don't have enough two by fours. What are we going to do? Okay, well, we're going to have to wait. We're done for today. <laughs> Darn it. I know. Uh, so that was, you know, there was like another kind of seed that was planted there. And that, that was probably the birth of architecture, too, was, was between set design and then the balance of the science and the art. And throughout college, people were like, you know, you should think about architecture. You should think about architecture. And Wesleyan didn't have a very developed program. So it was kind of like, oh, maybe, you know, from there. So. And then you went on to architecture. Did, so did you go directly to architecture school from undergraduate? I moved to moved back to California uh, okay. and uh, I spent a year in the middle of nowhere on the coast and uh, and got a job as a draftsman uh, for an engineering company, uh, for a micro engineering company doing these teeny little electro optical parts. So I learned how to dr draw on a computer, 3D model, all that stuff. 
And I remember about a month into the job realizing, holy crap, these things are teeny. You know, I have no idea the scale. <laughs> they look like little cities, you know, I'm just drawing all this. <laughs> and then a part would come back. I'm like, where's the part? That's it. Perfect. Was that like Port Wanimi or someplace? Almost? It was Morro Bay. Morro Bay. Oh, Morro Bay. Bay. Okay, perfect. Yeah. perfect. And, and I got to tell you, Dick, as I'm telling the story, it was the same deal. I was working for this, this really esoteric guy that was building this crazy contraption, you know, super, you know, coding mirrors for NASA, that kind of thing were really um, high level engineering, right. but he was, he was making parts, installing parts, some would work, some wouldn't, you know, and then back to the drawing board. Okay, let's try it this way. So we were prototyping and building as we went all the while getting, getting funded by a company that had, you know, businesses in mind. So it was like, okay, we got to make this thing perform. You got to hit these deadlines. You know, it was uh it was super analogous to my life right now as I'm thinking about it, except for the scale. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, it sounds like you, you were involved in target costing, you were involved in plan, do, check, and act, you're involved in mock-ups, you're involved in, you know, all of this stuff that we talk about as uh, inherently important to, to what we do. Yeah, yeah. Heavy on the learning side, heavy on the fabrication side. Um, I think my my role, I'm probably, you know, overstating a little bit, but you could say was really understanding the needs of the user, the engineer, and translating those into form and then working with the fabricators to get that thing built and then going back and saying, uh, you know, here's the product. And the, uh, the big difference there is we got that loop was iterative, you know, and the work that we're doing these days, it's iterative on these really long, you know, you get hired for the next project type things. So. Well, one of the cool things about what you say is that you always had the end in mind. You know, you always had to figure out not only what you were doing, but how it was going to be built yeah. and how it was going to perform. I mean, whether it's set design or, or the little things in envelopes. <laughs> no, it, it, it's true. And, and in a constrained environment with limited resources and time and all that stuff. So it was, it was in a way, very value driven. So what led um, you to uh, architecture school where you just sick of living in Morro Bay and said, I need to get out of here. I mean, a little bit. I don't know if this will make the podcast, but it was Morro Bay is right near San Luis Obispo. There's a great architecture school there. I thought, ah, I'll fool around with architecture. And uh, there's no way. I mean, I I came in with a degree from Westland, really no architecture background. And uh, compared to San Luis Obispo, which which trains technical architects really, really well. So I could not get a job in an art and they have a no growth policy in that whole area. So there's very little design and construction going on at all. And then I was surrounded by these really talented architect, you know, yeah. who were highly skilled in drafting and all that stuff. And <laughs> this guy who was building this contraption, I think he saw something in me. He's like, okay, you're going to be my guy. But, um, but by the traditional bar, you know, I was really not, uh, not very qualified. So Partly out of frustration, I was like, all right, forget it. I'm going to architecture school. <laughs> and I'm not just going to go to Annie. I'm going to apply to the best architecture schools and I'm going to be done with, you know, all, with all this stuff. And and uh, and that and that was that. I mean, that was an amazing part of my life. I in some ways go back in a heartbeat. It's just like architecture school, you are just immersed in the experience. There's nothing in life that's not about design or architecture. Right. What uh, you just eat, breathe, sleep. Well, you eat and breathe it and you don't sleep. So, and so drink. Did you it. end up going to San Luis Obispo or did you go out back to the East Coast? I Back to the East Coast. I went to Harvard. So I went, I went just go. like right into it. Like, okay, I am. <laughs> if they're going to make me do this, I'm going to do it right. I'm going to do it with the best. Yeah, it yeah. was great. I, I had a really strong portfolio and, a, and a, I think a probably interesting background from, from that time at Wesleyan. And uh, 
you know, and, and, uh, and so I got into this, this great program. Uh, uh, our, our dog is named after my mentor there first semester last month, Mr. Rafael Moneo, this absolutely incredible man. Uh, he did the, the cathedral in Los Angeles. He's really a, a phenomenal Spanish architect. And, and he, uh, he, he really kind of showed all of us just a way of being and thinking and approaching and, and all that sort of stuff. So yeah, that's, that's, the, the vision of parents these days is you send your kids off to school so that they can get a job. And, you know, that was not the, that was not the mission of Middlebury or Wesleyan or any of those schools. It was to teach you how to think and live in the world and act like a really you know interesting and curious person. And um, that seems to have paid off for you pretty directly. You know, I'm still trying to figure that one out, Dick. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, in some ways, I do admire the the more focused, precise kind of you, you do four years here, you come out, you got the skill, you go do it. Yeah, yeah. You know, we at Wesley, we would joke, other than the language majors, nobody had a marketable skill. Right. <laughs> yeah. Well, at some time I'll share with you over a beer all the different opportunities I had when I got out of school, which were yeah. pretty remarkable. They, they certainly weren't things that you would think of. But anyway, this is about you and not about me because I get to do well, this every week. But- Maybe tying us back together, that curiosity and the like learning and all of that sort of stuff. I mean, I'd say those schools are pretty, that was, and I think still is their, their mindset. So, yeah, it, it is in a very real sense, a finishing school or a starting school kind of, you know, to build on what you did in, in high school. So, so when you got out of Harvard, uh, you decided you were going to go uh, work in the big room with Bill Proctor. Is that, was that the direct trajectory? I, I did a year in Japan. I got a grant to go oh, there. Work for. Yeah, yeah, I got. A, I went to Middlebury for uh, for a short period of time, learned Japanese, learned some Japanese. Hi, so does Kaso, so does Ne. So does your Ne. And then moved to Tokyo and spent uh, spent nine months in like a Black Cape Architect Studio doing you know museum competitions and traveling the world and that kind of stuff. It was it was amazing. It was oh, incredible. And then I spent I spent a, a that was partnered with. A, the grant was kind of to think about the way uh, architecture in Japan is done mm-hmm. formally and then traditionally, you know, currently and traditionally. So I, the current model was was working in that studio. The traditional model, I, I, I worked for a carpenter. I worked for a, a carpenter on um, Awajishima on an island building a house. <laughs> it wow. was that was amazing. <laughs> I can so, imagine. Yeah. So kind of sort of picking up some of those early threads, the design side and understanding Really, really, the the thesis of the grant or the question of the grant was how is design, what happens to design during construction and how does design influence construction? How does, more importantly, how does construction influence design? Is it one way more closely aligned with what I represented from the Wesleyan, you know, stage thing where you make a drawing, you build a drawing, or is it more kind of back and forth? Yeah, and this is very much the uh, Swiss tube um, travel through you know, crazy pneumatic tube to get from one thing to the next, because I mean, everything that we talk about now is how does construction influence design and how does design influence construction. And you were, you know, you were back in the model T days. Um, it, it must've been weird when you sat with other architects and they go, what, what are you talking about? Well, I got to say in Japan at that time in, at, in the studio I was working in, and then also, you know, the carpenter I was working with, there was so much back and forth. I mean, you, Dick, if you That's were so dropped cool. into that environment, you would totally recognize it. You know, the, you, we would develop things kind of sort of, sort of the like early DD level. And then the architects would move in, move to the contractors and everybody would partner together and, 
you, there was a whole lot of, there was a lot of rework and, and, uh, you know, I, I, I think, um, oh, there's a lot of collaboration. That's, that's probably the way to put it though. The contractors understood that the drawings did not capture the full intent of the architect and the contractors really wanted to understand what that intent was. And the architects there at that time in that place really had the ability to both steer things during construction and even a little bit of like, oh, let's do it this way instead. And the contractors would be like, no problem. You know, and they, boom, it gets done that way. That's fantastic. So yeah, you, it was, uh, yeah. you jumped on a boat and came back from uh, Japan. I always wanted to take a, one of those big freighters and cruise around. Uh, about <laughs> Life is long, dude. Yeah, it still happens. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> So, so when you came back, what did you do? Who, who did you start looking for? You know, I um, I came back during a well, just a couple of sides that helped with the coming back thing. Our hours were ten to ten, six days a week in that office. Mm-hmm. So we were. It was just like being in school. You ate, you you ate, drank, and uh, and breathed architecture. No sleeping at all. It was really insanely fun and rewarding. But just like like. Uh, you know, at, at the time, I was like, you know, I may take a little break from this whole kind of maniacal thing and go back to like an 80 hour work week instead of <laughs> this total craziness. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I, I totally understand that. Yeah. So I came I came back during a recession, couldn't find a job I wanted in, in L.A. and thought, OK, I'm going to try the East Coast because I know that better. Drove, packed my stuff in the car, drove across the country, stopped to see a friend in, in Minneapolis and got a job uh, as a contractor framing houses kind of at the end of the summer and into fall. And I was like, oh, cool. I'll just stop and do this for a while. So I, I went back using some of those carpentry skills and, and worked on this pretty amazing house, you know, as the fall colors are happening and everything it was really, it was really, really pretty. And then, then picked up a job from that, that, that really fun kind of, you know, construct. Oh, and it was design build too. The architect who had designed the house was also the lead contractor. Wow. So there's kind of a little pattern here. Pick, picked yeah, up yeah. a job, uh, picked up a job, um, picked up a, a great job inside. I found uh, I, I got I, I got connected to this really small architecture firm where everybody did not everybody, but kind of sort of everybody did everything. So I, I got a my first real taste of American style or an early taste of, of American style architecture was soup to nuts, like the front end stuff, the CA stuff, the proposing stuff, the billing and contracting stuff, everything. So I had kind of a blast of that. And then, um, and then through some random circumstances that I would be happy to share over a beer sometime, got connected to Ellerby, um, to Ellerby Beckett, which was at the time just this, they became AECOM, just this absolutely mm-hmm. big, important, um, uh, the opposite of the firm that I, I was working in and got pulled, uh, eventually got hired. I was like, oh, hell yeah, I'd love to work there. You know, this an old family friend. We've got just amazing connections that go back generations and, I reached out to him and he absolutely was just, he too became kind of a a mentor to me and, uh, and eventually got me a position there. And I spent a lot of the nineties, most of the nineties at, at Ellerby in Minneapolis. If it was so cool, why would you leave? That's always the question. <laughs> well, I got married. <laughs> that's, that's the lawyer question. Oh, you got married. That's what happened. It was another uh, party. <laughs> uh, but you're still, unlike me, you're still married. So congratulations. On uh. <laughs> <laughs> so at, at some point in time, you, you made your way up to, um, to Sacramento for the uh, California healthcare receivership program. What was your, what was your road there? How did you get selected on the team? And how did you get to the, uh, I think you were with the HTA team initially, right? Yeah. yeah. And, and I, some of the story I don't fully know, but, but a, a, an experience that just predated that was some early work for Sutter as Sutter was just getting pulled into, to, um, 
excuse me, as Sutter was just getting pulled into to lean in the d- delivery of projects and right. had already been made some pretty good roads into <coughs> to lean in the delivery of healthcare. And HGA had been super active in the lean and delivery of healthcare and was very committed to lean in the project, uh, lean in the delivery of projects. So I ca- kind of sort of had both things, exposure to both things uh, through our client Sutter. And I believe that, um, in fact, I know C- CPR, there were some key, um, you know, it was, it was Sutter had sort of similar projects, but not enough, you know, a, 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 the scope and the budget didn't exactly match. And by the way, there was no time, you know, what's a better way of, of delivering this project? How about lean? The RF, Q came out for uh, for a heavy uh, lean approach to delivering the the CPR project and and somehow we got partnered with uh, with Clark McCarthy and, and HDR I think to bring that that lean understanding when you took over as the chief engineer or as a co chief engineer you had to come up with something called target value design and. Uh, and all of us had this, um, you know, there were a lot of lean speakers on that job who would say, well, yeah, target value design. But I don't think anybody really ever understood it very deeply. And we had to, you know, I, I credit you and and Michael for really inventing how best to go about it. And I, I think we were fortunate that uh, Dan and I had figured out early on that people didn't really understand what value was about. So we better have a value proposition and a workshop to understand what the values were, which I think helped launch that. But then you created this kind of matrix of things. Tell us about that a little bit, because I think that's really a that, that's a great story that gets gets mistold on a regular basis. Uh, well, I mean, I I love one of the things I loved about Sutter and and still do is the is the clarity and the just do these three things and that's all we're asking for. Do these three things and CPR took the same approach. You know, there were those five different things. Just do these five things. That's all we're asking for. Right. And um, and it's it's through a lot of coaching from from people like you, Dick, and the the other people who are involved. <laughs> but just just repeating that, Dick, it was from coaching from from you and and your colleagues there. You know, all the, these great lean minds in um, in what target value design could be and why. You know, if it if it if at the time it was frequently focused at cost, what would it look like to bring that to to bring in other costs like uh, like square footage or time to deliver or the number of staff or you know those sorts of things. And but that, I think and over time it's morphed into really. Uh, constraints, right? Not just cash, not just schedule, but quality, function, program, weather, whatever, you know, whatever it happens to be. But, but- I, I hope it's morphed into that. You know, I, I, some, it, I see it more connected with, with cost, 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 which is important. Right. But those other aspects and the idea of the ability of a team to create ideas that drive, that move the needle in other, other areas besides cost is huge. Well, that, so. that's one of the things I think people miss about target value design is that is that they miss that step from values to big ideas. You know, how are those values reflected in oh. whatever it is that we're doing? Yeah, I remember the big board that you had with the big ideas. Tell us a little bit about that because it was so cool. Well, it was really, I mean, it's a, and again, I appreciate the, the coaching that you gave for this, but, it, but the idea is to just, tr- we were, we had five different areas we were interested in performance in, and we had a, we had different teams. I think we organized maybe like a hundred people into seven teams and each team was focused on different areas of influence. And right. the first thing that the teams did was, was reflect on the, w- reflect on the criteria, the five criteria, 
do some research and some ideating and all that stuff, and then come back with ideas that would influence the criteria. And that's, that's how that whole board thing got started was, was we had the criteria on one side, we had the idea, you know, kind of running along the top of the X of the Y axis. And then we had, tell us what your, what your, what the impact of these things are. You know, if you went from seven campuses to six, if that's an idea, how does it impact the cost? How does it impact the schedule? How does it impact staffing? Those things. And, and we really, in the, especially in the early report outs, we weren't designing, you know, we were talking, we were ideating, we were, we were creating and evaluating ideas. And every once in a while, CBA would play a big role in that too. But it was, it was, it was a conversation of ideas. And what was really great about that is that, is that given the short time frame that we had, the short window, it was impossible to design stuff and send it to estimating and wait three, three weeks for them to do a takeoff and come back. I mean, we had to have real-time costing because it was a necessity. And I, I think that's I think that's something we learned very, very early in that project. And yet now out in the world, you get, well, give me a drawing and then I'll I know. You know, come back a month later and I'll tell you how much it's going to cost. And it's just, it's really, it's really hard. So what did you learn from that that you've carried into your practice now about, you know, costing in real time on designs? Well, um, maybe some tactical stuff, some clean stuff and some squishier stuff. But on the, on the clean side, giving, I don't know if you remember, we did confidence factors, you know, yeah. so I think, and sometimes we didn't, in the beginning, we didn't even have numbers. It was like small, medium, large, just ranges of numbers right. and confidence. I'm, I'm 50% confident yeah, <laughs> that this is going to have a big impact. And that's it. You know, so giving people the ability, instead of saying, you got to give me a specific number by Tuesday, it's more like, well, what, a, what if on Monday you could give me a feeling and then Tuesday you could tell me whether, you know, crystallize that a little bit more. And then by Friday, now we're getting a, a, a clearer number. Right. You know, and, and uh, what do they say? Chunk, not batch. So giving people to, to share their knowledge in the chunks that they have rather than demanding the batch of the, you know, multi-item cost estimate. And then having a tool that can absorb that and report it out in real time across multiple streams. I think that's what, you know. And uh, it gave us enough of a cost indication. We got cost indications early on and we were at that time, it was, and I would say that really projects still work this way. You're because you're looking at alternates. It's it's really relative pricing, you know. So if you're using the same methodology and you're getting your the 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 number itself might have a little squish to it, but the relative number, the rel the relative understanding is probably pretty good. Yeah, is this more or less than this? Right. Yeah, I mean, classic example now is ah uh, prefab. That's great. How much would that component cost? Ah. Uh, you know, I mean, that right. just sucks the air out of out of the room, right? Well, and, and, and what's funny is that it, is that uh, you know I I find out new things every time I'm on on a different project. So we were looking at some modularization for student bedrooms, and and it seemed like a great idea because you could build them off site. But when you built them off site, you had to you had to use a gauge of steel that blew away your carbon numbers. So you had no chance of meeting sustainability because you had to create a shell that was so rigid that it could be lifted. And now all of a sudden you're, you're five times or 10 times the carbon cost of some other alternative. So I mean, that, that illustrates the power of, of tracking multiple criteria as you right. do something. If you had been just tracking time or money, you might've missed that, you know, yeah. and then oh, you would have, yeah. Yeah. For sure. You would have missed it on just time. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, 
And if, if you're not if you're not tracking multiple criteria, that's a, that's the great thing about um, using some of these optioneering tools like like choosing by advantages or whatever. You, you have to actually be thoughtful about what your criteria are, rather than designing to a, a certain thing. And, and I think when we're at our best, the teams, you know, clusters out west, the clusters that we're in have skill sets that represent those different criteria, which is what we did at CPR. You know, right. there were estimators, there were schedulers, you know, on each one of those teams, there was someone who who knows that stuff well. And it's it's, it's also important to throw in the random landscape architect or the random um, fire safety pipe guy uh, or gal, because a, a different perspective from what you've always done is really crucial to to making those things work. So translating out of uh, out of um, CPR, where we were so successful that we couldn't build anything because the economy collapsed on us. <laughs> uh, but, but we went on to do a design build instead of an IPD for the uh, Stockton, Stockton facility. Yeah. I still have a plaque on my wall that shows that we did $61 million of construction in a single month at that place, Jeez. Uh, which yeah. is which is a load of stuff. And I think if we hadn't had the 19 month ramp up to that, you know, we, we probably never could have done that. Yeah. Um, Dick, we've got a, you know, the squishy thing I, I'm realizing I forgot was the culture at, at CPR, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, that there's something, you know, building off your 19 month. I mean, I think, I think just that everybody, you know, Foreman, Storm and Norman performing, you know, we, we got through all that stuff and everybody knew and trusted and understood limits and capabilities and all that stuff. I mean, it was, that well, there were, there were crucial things. I mean, most of the people on that project were there three or four days a week. Yeah. And we were all eating lunch together. And and I don't think you can can underemphasize how important it is to share yes. a meal with the people that you're that you're hanging out with. Yeah. Uh, because you, you learn so much. And it's not just a meal, it's a, you know, closing down the bar at the Sheridan in Sacramento was a ritual. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But you, you really do learn so much about about each other. And, and, uh, I mean, it's, it's, uh, yeah, I mean, the, the trusting situation is, is phenomenal and enduring too. I mean, it's amazing. Look at you and me. Yeah. Yeah. No, no, <laughs> these, these are our pals from old times. Yeah. Um, and, and it is one of the, so one of the things that we talk about in the lean community is, is respect for people. And, you know, the summer yeah. that I had spent in Japan, uh, one of the guys I lived with did the doorknobs or the window cranks for Toyota and he, ah. he just hated Toyota. <laughs> they were just so brutal to him. And I mean, you were working 10 hours a day or you yeah. were working 12 hour shifts, six days a week. Um, do you think respect for people comes from, from the quintessential lean of Toyota? Or is it, is it something we've added on to it because it's so important to develop a culture where oh, there's a culture of respect and trust? I think Japan, Japan's an island and they, there's a, I do not pretend to understand the Japanese, you know, mindset, <laughs> but, but I did live there and I, what I experienced it, it is, it is a deeply respectful place. It really is. Right. And you, you see things that, that seem to counter that, uh, that seem to counter that. But, uh, but I think at its essence, it's, it's, there's a little bit of that island mindset where they, everybody relies on everybody else. You know, there is, they are the group of people. They are that 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 group, and there there aren't external forces that are going to save them or break them, or you know. And then we try to translate that into a, a, a much more entrepreneurial 
place like the states. I mean, individual entrepreneurial, not that the, the organizations are more or less, you know, innovative. But how do you translate? How do you find that you translate that into into your teams? You know, as a as a lead on a on a project because you put together some amazing teams. I remember when you were doing three D. Um, printing for a hotel in Korea or something 40, 48 hours <laughs> and into the competition. Like how do you how do you get people to to follow into that into that mindset? Yeah, I, I think I mean I uh, I don't know Dick. <laughs> but, but some of the things that we've been talking about, like the spending time and the eating lunch and I for sure don't do enough of that, but just pausing to understand, you know, the the person behind the work and a, a little bit more. And then I also think, um, you know, and it's, it's easier to do this now, but really respecting people's personal lives too. And, and right. Digby, et cetera, really helped me see that overtime and weekend work was, was a failure. You know, I was going to say in some ways a failure, but I think the the cleanest understanding is now that's a, that's failure state, you know, success looks like we're leading balanced lives. And, and a, a struggle I've had is in my own upbringing as an architect, that was those 80 hour weeks were great and 100 hours is better you know that the the right. hero model of the harder you work the better you are is not uh is not that's that's a that's a rough deal you know especially for teams where yeah. you know when you get out of balance and there's some teams really pull, some members really pulling the sled and some coasting it it creates naturally a crazy amount of tension in all kinds of different directions and it's super unproductive parade of trades too right. i think that dice game really helped me you know, it's math, so I, I kind of could get it quickly, but just intellectualize. No, you know, when you outperform and underperform, you screw everything up. <laughs> you want to be yeah, smooth and steady. That's yeah. one of the one of the lessons of, of the last planner, which the parade of trades really mimics, is, yeah. is that it's just as bad to be early as it is to be late. Yeah. You affect the flow of the entire team um, if you're not just you know, on the beam, you know, at your percent yeah. or whatever, since we've, we've got some limited time, I want to, I want to make sure that I get to um, the whole SDDD and CD paradigm that, you know, I'm sure that you grew up with and what, uh, how have you helped? I mean, you've, <laughs> you've been in a lot of places, so you've been able to help a lot of people. <laughs> uh, but so how have you, how have you morphed your, your concept of design and what's the role of the designer in, in lean design and, and are there multiple roles? So how would you develop that? Well, I gotta say it continues to evolve. <laughs> so, <laughs> it's that a really is work a journey, progress, a work yeah. in progress. Yeah, <laughs> completely. Yeah. You know, I, I think that um, I think that a, a current mindset right now is that, um, you know, I kind of, my introduction to certainly the, the American architecture, Ameri- Western style is, is really, you're focusing on the users, the user needs, which totally makes sense, you know, and understanding what's going on operationally, experientially. I think with with IPD first and then prefab second, there's like another whole layer of the constructors and understanding the the construct the needs of construction. And and truth be told, I think those were always there. They were just in big black binders of details that LRB had developed over the last 50 years, you know, and theoretically that captured all of those needs. Uh, But really, and especially in prefab, I think understanding just as important as the the needs of the users, the end users of the building, or the needs of the implementers, the the ones who are going to be constructing it. So so there's a phase in the 
in the project where getting those first goals, then needs out and clear is really, really important. You know, CPR, we were blessed to have those in the, the five criteria, but that that is really, that's huge. That's that you could call that concept design or it could happen in concept design. But when you say concept design, a lot of people don't think about that. Another aspect is the, you know, kind of building on last planner is, is understanding the, the last responsible moment to do different things. And um, uh, there are certain areas in the building that you would want to have a, a better understanding of sooner rather than later. You know, in the SDDDCD models, you bring everything up at the same rate. You know, you're doing these big, big batches, as opposed to if you organize by construction need, let's just say you were doing module exam rooms and they had a really long lead time. You, you'd want to go in really deep on the exam rooms themselves. I would argue that because they drive the grid in an outpatient center, this, this happens anyway. You'd want a really clear understanding at a furniture and equipment level of the exam room kind of during, during concept design, you know, really right. you'd want the, you'd want to be starting CD level understanding back then, whereas other spaces, maybe the public areas, you, you really don't need that information till right. mid DD or end of DDs. So. Yeah. And, and that's a, that's a, I, I think what, um, what, what makes what we do so important because the, the iterative design is iterating the right things, the things that you actually need. Yes. And, and, and the things that are difficult and complex. And it's got nothing to do with a critical path of uh, installing the structure, right? It really has to do about information exchanges and, and diving deep into problem solving. And, and you have to go until you solve the problem. You, you can't say, uh, like Wallace Berry has this great quote about, about nuclear energy that the um, he argues with Edward Wilson in Consilience. And he says, you know, we're never going to solve everything. And wouldn't it be great that before we started using nuclear energy, we had figured out what we're going to do with the nuclear waste rather than, oh, hey, yeah. we'll get to it. <laughs> yeah. And some parts of the SDDD CD conundrum remind me of, well, oh, we'll, we'll just get to that. Well, we better get to it right now because this is really important. <laughs> the building's like going to work. Oh, yeah. And, unless that giant dome actually, actually, you know, stands up and doesn't crush people. I mean, that would be a bummer. Well, or the wall dimensions change because you picked a certain prefab system, you right. know, uh, during CDs <laughs> because right. the, the mantra is just draw it and we'll figure out how to prefab it. Oh, yeah, we could totally do that. Can you make it a three and a half inch wall? <laughs> well, we're, we're, well, now we're back in SDs. <laughs> yeah, what we always continue to do is that we, is that we you know, we, we create this structure of some kind. And we never worry about how it's going to work until we kind of get to how it's going to work. But if you're not thinking about how the building's going to work at the very earliest stages in design, you can't move to elemental elements, right? You are just going to be stick building everything because yeah. it's just going to show up. So there's a different mindset, I think, that that takes over um, about the value proposition. And, yeah. And that has to be done so so early in design, or you lose it. Every one of these projects that I'm on now, they're they're big projects, they're educational projects. They're you know they have been developed to almost a schematic level, so they can get their funding or their approval. Oh, yeah. trustees. But now you're trying to fit everything into them, and it's like, well, we could have thought about how everything fit into this before we decided on a 44 story tower. Yeah, to fit all the pieces in. So. It could be overwhelming, you know, just kind of putting it out there. 
But if you think about it as just resequencing, if you open yourself up to, we're not making more decisions or we're just changing the order of the decisions. Right. And I would submit that ultimately by doing that, you make fewer decisions. It's it, There's less stuff to do because well, uh, if you're open to resequencing. Yeah. And this is, I think, what's important about the, the idea of big ideas, right? Is that every project has some big ideas. One of them on this project was the residences in modular and we found out the sustainability was going to die if we did them but we, we found that out early because we set up a cluster to look at that another one is a, a recording studio that has to be juno class which is the granny uh grammy <laughs> it could be the granny too it's, it's like the the, the grammy of canada so you have to have a juno class recording studio and how do you put a residence on top of that Mm. Um, how you isolate it, you know, box in box somehow. And so we started an early cluster thinking about that. So we were taking these things to the level of almost construction documents to be able to early, early on, right. Whether that was even, even someplace that we could go and decided to put CLT on top of this building, the grid changed. And all of a sudden we've got millions of dollars worth of, of transfer beams and, and transfer slabs. And, and then we had to go back and kind of re-engineer that. But you're doing that in the in the earliest possible moments. And how do you get your teams who come out of law school or law school <laughs> who come out of law school <laughs> and beat the crap out of you? Um, how do you get your teams who come out of architecture school with this kind of? Well, first we start with the SDs, then we go to the DDs, and then we go to the CDs. How do you get them or the firms? I mean, you're at a big firm now, and uh, I remember when we did when when Rex Miller first wrote his book on construction industry revolution or whatever, and that Art had been one of the sponsors of that, and then he read it and he went, "No, <laughs> I'll pull back on this. This can't possibly be true." So, how, how do you evangelize in a in an industry that's very, uh, you know, and people are happy to be. And then people like doing SDs and then they stop for a while, you know, and then they, so how do you, how do you change that, that paradigm for a, a more value oriented? Oh, I love, I love that question. And I don't have the answer. <laughs> <laughs> I, I do. It feels like it's, it's easier. I think the, the, the hills getting less steep, you know, I, uh, I feel like things are easier are easier now. You know, I, I think the, the idea of collaboration, both within an organization and then across to other, either on the design side or on the implement side, I think is is much more out there. You know, I think I think we're we're in we're getting into a time now where we realize we're all in this together and we're not. And it could just be me getting older and not paying attention as well. <laughs> but it, it feels like <laughs> it feels like we're 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 entering you know kind of the we time where we're we are all in in this and and there is diversity of thought you know there's diversity in all kinds of different ways but but for sure thought and um and skill set and that if you if you put those different diverse ideas and skills together you're going to get a better product i think that's supported by a by a kind of um intolerance for the inhuman work conditions that we all thought were so great back then. <laughs> I think I think those young kids exactly. today are like 10 to 10, six days a week. How about right. <laughs> how about six to ten two days a week? Yeah. <laughs> exactly. And, yeah, maybe. And six of those a month are remote, right? Yeah, so, yeah exactly. Uh, come to the office. No, I, I mean, so I think respect, I'm hopeful, and again, it could be cluelessness as much as reality, but I, I'm hopeful that 
the ideas of respect are ascendant in our in our society and in our industry. You know that we treat ourselves more humanely and and each other more humanely. I th- and then and then close to that is that I uh, collaboration. You know, and that that one plus one is three. So. Right. Well, and 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 that respect also has to be towards the planet, towards our community, towards you know other folks, so that we're we're not just well, did- stuff out that you know gets swallowed up and you know makes lives people's lives uh, more miserable. Yeah, I, I think what's interesting is the easy part is over, right? I, I think now we're trying to refine what collaboration really looks like. Because if you're in a big room with 50 people and they're all billing, you basically have a CM not at risk on time and materials, which is like the worst possible thing you can ha- absolutely have, right? And so I've been on projects where where, where people have said, I've said, we, we need to get rid of the submittal process because we're picking stuff in design, so we don't need submittals. And they go, no, no, but we have a really collaborative submittal process. Okay, but it's still a submittal process. <laughs> There's still people pulling this waste is really it. good waste. <laughs> yeah, you got to be able to send people home. So I realize we only have a, a few more minutes before you got to go. So why don't you give me some pithy thing? Maybe we'll do a two part. I, I, I'm, uh, I mean the the. The, the world needs us, you know, more than ever, right? I mean, <laughs> in all kinds of different, different areas, you know, healthcare, research, housing, you know, we, 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 we need, you know, the design and construction is such a vital, vital, vital industry. It is. And we, we've served, we've been able to serve the world so well and uh, the needs, but we're not keeping up with the needs. I think the needs are outstripping the demands. Other industries have different models of, of, uh, for sure design, but also the interface between design and construction and even construction, right? Prefab is, is now right. an emerging thing for us. So I think, I think it's an, it's an awesome time and being open to aware of hungry for different ways of organizing ourselves and, and, uh, and, and serving the world. That's the deal now, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. I couldn't agree more. I think that the openness is really about transparency and these, these opaque systems that have built us some great buildings, but at what cost, right? At the cost of, uh, they've cost us more than we should have spent. They've taken longer than they, than they should have. They've, they've been disorganized in some ways. And yet your waste example, the 38 trucks driving away is a hundred are driving in. I mean, it's, it's, that's a brilliant example. It's, it's, it's come at a price, which is fine. It's got us to where we are, but where we're going, you know, we can improve it. Yeah. And, and and it's not so much that we, we can't afford the cost. I guess we could always afford the cost of that, but we just can't afford the time. Yeah. If you look at you know what what happened in these COVID times, and you look at the underserved world that doesn't even have vaccines, much less um, running water or you know access to education or uh, whatever those things happen to be. And and really, the, the built environment has a huge part to to play in making that accessible to folks. So I thank you for your role, my friend. Uh, oh. What's next for you? When are you, when are you retiring? When are you? Uh... <laughs> well, a, a trawler, you and I are going to go trawler shopping and then uh, get on a boat. There we go. <laughs> that would be awesome. In the South China Sea, you know, yeah. we reinvent the Mosquito Coast without all the violence. I'm getting to the the liberal arts thing and the uh, you know that curiosity and interest in yeah. in learning and exploring that that really maybe you could tie that back to our college days but well, some this, of those seeds <laughs> this is the thing that has made my career so fascinating is that I've gotten to be able to do all of this stuff 
in the last like 20 years of my career where I learn every single day I go to a, you know, a pull plan session and I learn how buildings come together. I learn how people make assumptions about how hanging ductwork and, and drywall and, you know, how they're, how they're doing things that just seem so completely disorganized in some ways. And yet these are the people we rely on to build them. They're the people we're really trying to help, right? I mean, your design gets translated right into a trade, installing something. And it goes through a whole bunch of different layers that maybe it doesn't have to go through. Uh, we don't have to purify the water by going through silt. I think we could just go right to pure water. Totally. Yeah. Uh, that would be better for us. Okay. Sounds good. Good All seeing right, you, man. <laughs> Always good to see you. Love you, buddy. All right. Likewise. <laughs> Adios. Thank you for tuning in to the Lean Construction Blogs podcast. If you've enjoyed this episode, please help us spread the word by sharing, subscribing, or leaving a review on your preferred podcast listening platform. Remember to join us next time as we continue to lower the barriers to applying lean construction and help take your lean journey to the next level. And don't forget to visit the Lean Construction blog to stay up to date on our latest podcast episodes, weekly blog posts, monthly webinars, and upcoming conferences. We hope to see you on the next episode.